Good morning. Our scripture passage for today is Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. 
Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to the Rochelles, Larry and Sue. And and Larry, let me just say, you're looking dapper today. And um, if I'd known this is what it takes to get you to dress like that, you could read every Sunday. But anyway, thank, thank you guys. I'm Paul Gilbert, the lead pastor. So glad you were here. Next week, um, it's a very special Sunday. We're going to be celebrating um, baptisms. There's going to be eight baptisms in the first service, eight baptisms in the second. It's one of my uh, favorite times of the year. If you've never been to a baptismal service here, it's an awesome opportunity to hear testimonies, the work of God's grace in people's lives, to worship together, to celebrate together. We'll do a little teaching on baptism. We've got a number of special things um, in store, so love to have you there. Now, let me let you in on a little secret. This is something you may not have known. It is just, I mean, we never speak of it here. You're actually allowed to attend both services, okay? I know that's like a massive shock to some of you. It's like, oh, I have never conceived of such things, but it's allowed. It's allowed. We'd love to have you. I'm just giving you a hard time, but today we're in Genesis 17. We're journeying through this book almost a third of the way through. And and if you're new with us, one of the things that you need to know is that we preach through books of the Bible. And and we do that, um, well, we see a a couple of particular reasons, a couple of fruits from that when we do, when we treat the Word of God in this way. Number one, we find that when when we preach through books of the Bible, it's the Word of God that dictates what we talk about on that Sunday, in other words, we're, we're not, there's not a group of pastors and elders, and we're sort of playing some kind of version of, of, of theological pin the tail on the donkey, right? Like, what, what are we talking about today, guys? Who's got a hunk of hunk of burning love to communicate something? You know, what's a little 70s throwback right there for you? No, that's not how we do it. What, what, what we find is that as we're preaching through books of the Bible, that God strategically, in his timing and providence, um, brings the text and what we're dealing with as a church family into intersection. It's amazing how that happens. And, and so it is today as we're um, talking about, of all things, circumcision. Like who would have picked that out of the hat, right? Um, and who was assigned that text? What we're going to find is circumcision is immensely important as it relates to the sign of the covenant that we now celebrate called baptism, and we're going to circle back around to that towards the end of the sermon. But let me, let's provide some context here as we jump into 17. Verse 1, Moses tells us that Abram is 99 years old. And that's not a throwaway line. This is significant because we know that it's been 13 years since the debacle of chapter 16. And if you're with us, that's when... Abram and Sarai got a great idea that they were going to propagate the line through the concubine Hagar, poor Hagar, and she conceives and bears a son named Ishmael. And Abram just assumes this is how God's going to work. It's going to be through Ishmael, and it's been 13 years. Now, the reason that's significant is that in the ancient Near East, the age of 13 is when a male, the male heir, would be formally 
anointed as the future patriarch of the family. He wasn't necessarily given the, the torch or the baton, but it was a symbolic time to note that this is the chosen one. This is who is going to carry the family line and the promise forward. And it's at this time, no coincidence, that God appears to Abram. Now remember, this is his fourth time to appear to Abram. And what we find here is a rehearsal of some of the same things that God has told him before. Abraham would have been very familiar with this by this point. You probably are. So if you look down in the opening verses of 17, we, we've heard a number of these things a number of times before. God's going to bless Abram. He's going to bless the nations through him. He's going to give Abram the land. It's through Abram's seed, his physical seed, that will come the Messiah who will bless the nations of the world. But this particular appearing is slightly different in that God adds one little detail. Something that is probably implicit up to this point in everyone's thinking. But now God wants to make something crystal clear. Look at verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. See, God wants to remove all doubt in Abram's mind for how this whole plan of redemption is going to unfold. It's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be someone else. It's going to be Isaac. Now, Abram's response, if you look down in verse 17 and 18 for a second, will will tell you something about Abram's spiritual posture, kind of his spiritual temperature at this point in his life. And by his response, you can tell Abram has not a clue. This is not on his radar at all. Look at verse 17 and 18. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed. And this is not a mocking laugh, but more of a, oh, surely you humor me, God, right? Don't, don't patronize me, God, these old bones. You know, it's that sort, of, that sort of attitude. But he says he laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. See, the way Abram responds here shows us something about his heart and his spiritual posture, his spiritual temper, temperature. Abram is just sort of writing things out. Abram has resigned himself that this is just the way things are. Abram is in spiritual autopilot. See, there, there's no anticipating. There's no hoping There's no praying. There's no looking forward. There's no anticipating what God might do in his life, in his family. In fact, this is the way John Calvin describes Abram's posture, and I think it's right on. He says, Abram, being contented with his only son, ceased to desire any other seed. The want of offspring had previously excited him to constant prayers and sighings. For the promise of God was so fixed in his mind that he was ardently carried forward to seek its fulfillment. See, guys, it's not that Abram no longer had faith. 
I mean, you can see this in even the way he responds. He bows before the Lord. He submits himself to the Lord. Rather, it tells us about where Abram has been. He has, again, been in spiritual autopilot. There is no longer that sense of expectation, of hope, of yearning. There's not that daily sense of, I'm coming to you, Lord, and I'm beseeching you. I'm coming and asking, what do you have for me? What is your will for me? And, and we all know, we've all been in places here, haven't we? Where we have been in spiritual crisis, physical crisis, financial crisis, medical crisis. And what happens in those times? We are driven to seek the Lord, are we not? We are driven to find him. We are driven to, to seek after his will. But so oftentimes we find ourselves living in the very same place that Abram is living here, sort of in the spiritual in between. Just kind of spiritually meh. Now let me ask you, do you resonate with that at all? Is this a point in your life where you've come face to face with some point of spiritual barrenness in your life, whatever that might be, and you have just sort of mailed it in? There's a spiritual lethargy. There's a spiritual settledness. Your eyes of faith have grown dull. There is not, no longer that sense of desperation of, God, give me your Holy Spirit. God, I'm, I'm beseeching you. Would you meet me in this place? If so, you and I are in the same place that Abram is, in desperate need of revival, in desperate need of renewal. And that's where God meets Abram. It's where he wants to meet you. It's where he wants to meet me. And there's two things I want to point out from this text that God reveals to Abram in Abram's place of what we would call spiritual dryness. And and, and the two things are this. God wants to remind Abram of his calling. He wants to remind you of your calling. And he wants to remind Abram of his commitment. He wants to remind you this morning of his commitment. Let's look at calling first. For those of you who know us um, in the Gilbert clan, we have four kids, three girls and a boy. And so when our son was born, we knew that he was going to be, how shall we say this, disadvantaged, right? Okay. Growing up in a house full of women, he'd be blessed in so many ways, but with the estrogen swirling all around him, we knew he was going to need a manly identity, right? He was going to need a a name that would reflect his masculine character and testosterone. We settled on Jack, right? I was holding out for Spike, but Susan said, no, 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 we're not going there. If your name is Spike, Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. We know this, don't we, instinctively, that we have the power by the names that we give people to set a trajectory for their lives, don't we? Let's not pretend that's not true. That's very true. But it was doubly true in the ancient Near East. See, names meant something literally. Like a tattoo, when you were named something, you carried that name wherever you went. And the names Abram and Sarai were those sorts of names. So so Abram literally means exalted father. And Sarai means princess. One of the things that maybe you haven't considered, and I really haven't considered up to the time I studied this passage this week, is how shaming and how painful those names were to Abram and Sarai. 
Think about this. For the vast majority of his life, Abram, exalted father, and the, and the, the entourages of people and traders who would come back and forth as in his sojournings, and he would be in his tent. And they would say, well, Abram, does, does, does that not mean exalted father? T- tell us, Abram, how many children do you have? Crickets, right? Silence. Sarai means princess. Princes marry, princesses marry prince, princess, and they have little princes, little princes who grow up to be kings. And, and this is a, a lineage of future spoken over her. And Sarai said, tell us now about these future kings and queens that you are raising in your tent. And again, silence. And we look at these names which were undoubtedly great sources of shame and embarrassment. And God comes to them and he says, I am here to give you another name. And we might think, well, well, this is a golden opportunity, right? Maybe we can go with something really plain. Joe, we have a Joe on staff, I can say Joe. Joe and, Joe and Sue, right? There we go. Joe and Sue, that, that doesn't communicate anything in particular. You know, just brush them into obscurity cover over their shame, put them to the side. That's how God will show his grace here. But yet, as we see, that's not what God does at all. In fact, God doesn't remove their names. God doubles down on them. He said, if you think you're ashamed of exalted father, wait, wait, Abram, here we go. I'm going to rename you Abraham, which literally means father of a multitude. A multitude, father of nations, father of a world. And Sarai, I'm gonna I'm gonna rename you Sarah, which is a derivative of the word princess, but instead of looking back to the fact that a princess has noble um, ancestors, now this Sarah really literally means pointing towards future descendants. And so God says, I'm, I'm going to double down. I'm going to give you these names. And of course, as we see with Abram, of course, he's going to laugh. Why, why should he believe God now? He's been sojourning how long in Canaan? 27 years. He is 99 years old. And some of you may be in that place. Pastor Paul, I, I mean, I believe in God and everything. And I believe in Jesus and I'm a Christian. And, but, man, I've been here a long time, Right? There's just this thing about my life you need to know. It's just the way it is. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. Can't teach, you know, new patterns, new habits. It's just, it's just I'm kind of consigned to the way things are going to be. This thing has is, is always been this way. It's not going to change. If that's where you are, it's where Abram is. God says, oh, by the way, I've got one more name change for you. And it's not your name, Abram, or not your name, Sarai, it's my name. So look in verse 1 of chapter 17. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now this is the first time in the Old Testament where we see this word for God. El Shaddai literally means Almighty God or God who can accomplish much. So in other words, Abram, you think you know me. 
You think you know what I do. You think you know my ways. But I'm here to remind you, there's something of my character you know nothing about. But I'm here to reveal it to you today as a sign of my grace. My name is not just Yahweh, the covenantal-keeping holy God, but it is that. But it's also El Shaddai. It's God Almighty, the God through whom can bring anything about. Again, for Oaks, where in your life do you feel like you need a fresh vision of El Shaddai? Where is the place in your life where you've thrown in the spiritual towel? Where in your life have you just settled into the place of spiritual barrenness? That's where Abram, now we can now officially call him Abraham. There we go. That's a relief. Abraham is. Is that where you are? Now understand something. When we pray to God Almighty to do his will, he doesn't always answer in the way that we think he should. But one way to think about this, and, and Tim Keller talks, talks in this way, that God, if we knew everything that God knows, see, we would be praying according to his will. And, and, and when God answers in a way we don't expect, maybe he leaves us in that place of spiritual barrenness, whatever that happens to be. Medical barrenness, financial barrenness, marital, parental, what have you, vocational. Maybe he's not answering in the way we think he should answer, but he's answering ultimately according to what is good and right. The issue is not, can God? God can. And some of us, we all need to be reminded of this. Abram is reminded of his calling. Do you need to be reminded of yours today? You have a new name. Do you realize that if you've placed your faith in Christ, you, we, we, we no longer look at things from a fleshly way, a humanly way. You're a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. He has written his name upon your heart. Do you know in this season of your life that God is El Shaddai? That he, in fact, is God Almighty. Abraham need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of our calling. But secondly, Abraham needed to be reminded of his commitment, and so do you and I. Look at verse 1. God says, I am Lord Almighty. Now listen, walk before me and be blameless. Now when we read those kind of scripture texts, let's be honest, we're just like, boy, that's for the, that's for the Bible. All right, those are, that's just for characters in the Bible that are, that are way up here and I'm way down here um, because we, we, I mean, walk before me. Who can be blameless? Now, you need to understand something. There's a lot of people, broken, sinful people in the Bible that God calls wholehearted or blameless. King David. Do you know that he was a man after God's own heart? See, obviously, this word doesn't mean to be sinless. What it literally means to be whole or to have integrity. It means that we are not a spiritual schizophrenic, that we are not divided. In other words, let's think about our lives and divide your life into eight slices like a pie. And sometimes we're really tempted to say, you know what, these four or five slices or areas of my life, I have no problem giving them to God, none. 
I give them a marriage. I give them a parenting. I give them this. But when it comes to my hobbies, when it comes to my money, when it comes to my job, no go. I sort of partition those off to the side. And, and what we want to, what, what C.S. Lewis would call then, we are half-hearted creatures. See, the wholehearted person, and this is a quote from a commentary, I love this, is one who desires to live life in such a way that every single step is made with reference to God. See, and this was important for Abraham to remember because in Genesis 15, God made a covenant with Abraham. And what did God do? He sliced the pieces. He walked through the pieces. He said, Abraham, just as surely as I would cease to exist, I'm going to be faithful to my covenantal promises. And in return, Abraham, here's your side of the covenant. Here is what you're doing. You're committing your very life to me. See, when we are wholehearted for oaks, it doesn't mean that we don't sin. Sometimes we sin grievously. Sometimes we are broken. We, we, We fall far short. But being blameless or wholehearted means that when we do fail, when we do fall, there is a desire in us, there is an awareness within us to say, God, I know I'm broken, please make me whole. God, I am desperately struggling in this area. Would you meet me with your grace? Even those times when we've fallen and, and we don't want to repent, there's something in us that says, but you know you should. You know, God, I, I don't want to, but I want you to make me to want to. That's the wholehearted person. That is what the Bible calls biblical faith. See, that, 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 that's what Abraham has been modeling for us. You can be super encouraged about Abraham. We talked about this last week. His life is like a ride on the start market of faith, is it not? It is up and down. There's incredible highs, excruciating lows. But at the end of the day, God says, a person is blameless before me when I'm their north star. When, I lay, when you lay your head down on the pillow at night, despite your deep struggles, there's something in your heart that says, I belong to God. He belongs to me. I want to walk worthy of his name. Because that's, and, and by the way, this doesn't come naturally. This is, this is, this is not like you can go into spiritual autopilot. This is why we make such a big deal about calling everybody together on the Lord's Day to prioritize gathering, singing, worshiping, hearing God's Word. Why do we do that? Because it reorients us. It reminds us. It, it, it takes our eyes off the horizontal and puts it on the vertical and says, God, I want to align my heart with you today. Is that where you are? Is that your heart's desire? This is what God calls Abraham to. Now, as we transition into this interesting portion of the text, there is a specific way that God calls Abraham to confirm this commitment to him. And it's through all things, wait for it, circumcision, right? I first taught this passage to a room of high schoolers 25 years ago. And that's all I'll say about that, okay? And I'll tell you what I told them. 
If you're unclear about what circumcision is, I said, go talk to your parents. So, so for if you're unclear about what circumcision is, go talk to your elders. They'll answer your questions right after the service. I don't want to trivialize it. Let's just call it what it is. The cutting off of the excess flesh around the male reproductive organ. Why in the world? What do we do with that? By the way, this was not new to Israel. Most of the ancient Near East cultures practiced circumcision. They just did it at the age of 13 for boys. That was when, like Ishmael, they were entering adulthood, puberty, and they were being prepared for a married life, for um, procreation. It was, a, it was a sign, it was a seal to say, you are now officially entering manhood. But here, God tells Abraham to do something different. He says, no, don't wait till 13, do it soon after birth on the eighth day. We have to ask why. why. Why was that such a significant thing? Let me ask you a question. Where did God's promises to Abraham to bless him and fulfill his covenant, where, where did that center? It centered first and foremost where? On his seed, on his son. Which meant that that circumcision was a daily reminder for Abraham that God has a claim on my life. My, my, my physical life, my progeny, he's, he's in control. And because he has a claim on my physical life, he has a claim on my spiritual life. Now, there, there is some really deep symbolism here going on. And I just want to briefly mention it. Remember back in Genesis 15 when God made his covenant and he cut the pieces in half and walked through the pieces Remember what we said then. The word covenant literally means what? To cut. And God's, God's way of saying, may I be cut or torn apart lest I violate the covenant. But now, Abraham's pledge in return back to God is a what? A physical cutting of the flesh. It's the shedding of blood. It's, it's demonstrating that that. Abraham is making a total life commitment. Everything, I mean, that's of the most private, personal area of a person's life. And it's as if God's saying, Abraham, even that belongs to me. All of you belongs to me. Now, does this mean that Abraham wasn't saved until he was circumcised? Most certainly not. Go back to Genesis 12. It is there that we are told that Abraham believed in God and what? It was credited to him as righteousness. Circumcision does not save. Circumcision is, pre, is faith precedes circumcision. Circumcision was simply a sign outwardly of what God wanted to do inwardly. And proof that circumcision never saved anyone, we only have to go to passage after passage in the Old Testament where God says what? Israel, you were what? Circumcised in the flesh. But guess what? You're uncircumcised in the heart. There's, your hearts are fleshly and they're full of sin. And it does you no good to be circumcised in the flesh if your heart is corrupt and fallen away from me. So what, what, is the, what is the message? Cut away the fleshliness from your heart. See, there's a sign, circumcision, and there's the reality. You can say, no, Pastor Paul, what, what does this have to do with us? 
Because as New Testament, New Covenant believers, we also have a sign that we use that designates our covenant and commitment to the Lord, and it's called baptism. And baptism replaces circumcision as the sign of the covenant for New Testament believers. Paul makes this clear in Colossians 2. Let's read it. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. See, we no longer circumcise as a sign of the covenant males. We now baptize any and all who are professing faith in Jesus Christ. But understand something. In the New Testament, just like in the Old Testament, faith always precedes baptism. Baptism in and of itself does not save. Baptism is, to to view baptism in that way is to view baptism as as a work and Paul makes it very clear, we are not, no one is justified by doing works of the law, no matter how awesome those works are, no matter how important they are. So we want to make that really clear. But that doesn't mean baptism isn't important. And that's probably, I would say, the, the side of the horse that we're going to most often follow. Oh, P- Pastor Paul, we know it's by grace. We know this water doesn't save us. We know it's just ceremonial and it's a time to take pictures and, you know, all ring out the relatives. And, and it's not less than that, but understand something. It's so much more. Do you realize that when you are publicly baptized as a believer, that is your covenant oath-taking sign? That is your sign of the covenant to say, I am committing myself to God. I know this water doesn't take away my sin, but it symbolizes being buried with Christ in his baptism, being raised to newness of life, having our consciences sprinkled clean by his blood. See, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. Baptism is important, and you've heard me say this before, for the same reason reason a wedding ring is important at a wedding. It doesn't make you married. But boy, you better put it on, right? Right? What does it say? Oh, no, 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 honey. I don't need that ring. I can just kind of live life and go out and do my thing. And we have, we have this understanding with each other. No, no, you look down on your hand and you realize, I have a covenant vow I have made with my partner, with my spouse. And baptism is the function in the same way. Let me tell you why baptism is, is particularly important in terms of that feature. See, when we struggle greatly in our sin, it's important that we be able to look back to that time where we were set apart and made a public profession of faith to the community of believers. Do you know, parents, when your kids struggle or people in your community group struggle or friends struggle, it's very, it's, it's, it's very relevant to be able to say, hey, do you remember back then when you were baptized and the family of faith gathered around and we prayed for you and you took those vows and, and like we were public witnesses. Remember that, brother? Remember that, sister? Press on. Let's, spur, let's be spurred on to love and good deeds. Let's not let our hearts grow hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We vowed to pray for you that day and we're praying for you. We're walking alongside of you. 
See, this is what the way circumcision functioned in the Old Testament. It's the way baptism functions for us. It is a reminder of how Jesus Christ has done a supernatural work of grace in our hearts, not by water, the removal of dirt, as Peter would say, but by his shed blood. Today, if you don't know this Jesus Christ, what he offers you is a circumcision of the heart. So I want to cut away that flesh. I want to give you a living, breathing, dynamic faith in me. I want to do great things in your soul. If you're in a place today of spiritual barrenness, and you're a believer, and you've kind of been there, done that, and your heart has grown cold, or maybe just indifferent, or maybe you've resigned yourself, God wants to remind you, wants to remind me today, I'm the covenant-keeping God. I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Turn your hearts to me. Let's pray.